0: Well, we continue our series in 1 Timothy, heading into chapter two. So go ahead, have those Bibles open in front of you as we have anticipation that the Lord will bless us as we study his word. Now, over the last two weeks, we've been looking at chapter one and we could say that Paul has been dealing specifically with correcting doctrine. False teachers have infiltrated the church and were spreading a contrary doctrine about things they knew nothing about. To correct this, Paul has commanded Timothy to seek their silence. There should be no platform given to those who have wandered away from a pure heart, a clear conscience and a sincere faith. Yet this step is not going to be enough. Once the false teachers have been dealt with, once they have been removed, Timothy is to replace the void with sound doctrine, specifically the gospel of Jesus and the promise of forgiveness to all those who place their faith in Christ. As he removes the false teachers, removes the false doctrine, he has to put in sound doctrine to the church. Now it's interesting that Paul started with correcting doctrine, for all flows from the word of God. If there's not a firm grip on scripture then anything else in the church is futile. A church cannot grow, it cannot serve, it cannot obey if it first does not have sound doctrine at its very core. Now, as we move into chapter 2, Paul shifts his attention from sound doctrine within the church that he's commanded Timothy to put in, to sound conduct. Chapter 2 looks at our approach to a whole life worship to Christ, and then begins to look at a specific outworking of this in the public worship service, now known mainly, but not exclusively, as our Sunday worship service. Now, as we go through the passage today, and we've got quite a lot to cover, remember the first sermon in this series. 1 Timothy may have been written by Paul, but the words contained in the letter come directly from God. Commands given are commands of God. Obedience expected is obedience to God. We may find it difficult to accept, but that doesn't change what is the 100% truth of God's Word. So as we walk through the passage today, I want us to concentrate on a particular statement. I'm going to read it out twice so we really have it in our minds. Here's the statement. Sound doctrine leads to sound conduct. Where conduct slips, it is likely due to a diminished doctrine. Let me say that again. Sound doctrine leads to sound conduct. Where conduct slips, it is likely due to diminished doctrine. So with that in mind, let's head into our passage starting in 1 Timothy, chapter 2, and from verse 1. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people. Now that the false teachers have been removed, or at the very least they've been silenced, Timothy is to fill that void. That has been left and to do so Paul encourages or urges or even commands that the church first and I want you to notice that first starts with prayer. What we'll see is this isn't just any type of prayer but at the core the church is to be evangelistic in its prayers. Here in verse one we have four types of prayer that are to be undertaken. We have supplications which comes from the Greek word deuses meaning to be without something or in lack of something. As we recognise what we lack, we are to, through prayer, plead God to provide. Then we have prayers, which refers to a general prayer or a general communication with God. It's always in reference to God, praying to God about God. It might be statements of scriptural truth or an utterance of praise to his name. Then we have intercessions. In the original Greek, there is a connotation of coming alongside someone or being in step with them. You're not watching from the sidelines. Rather, you're rolling up your sleeves and you're getting stuck in. An excellent example of this is in fact the Holy Spirit in Romans eight twenty-six. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And then we have thanksgivings, praying with a spirit of gratitude toward the Lord for what he has done and what he'll continue to do. Now you'll see that these four types of prayer can indeed refer to just about anything in life. Yet what we need to see is that they mainly refer to salvation in Christ. We recognise those who lack salvation, who are living without that eternal peace. We plead with God to save them. We pray the promises of salvation in the name of Jesus and we come alongside that individual, getting in step with them to lead them to Jesus. And we praise Jesus that he continues to save and that there'll be many known as children of God. You see, we can be quite insular and selfish with our prayers we need to move beyond our own lives, beyond our own friendship circles we're in, and pray for, as Paul says here, all people. To pray evangelistically for our community, for our city, for our country, and the many areas in the world that have never heard the gospel message. It is the antithesis of false teachers. They seek self, they seek followers, they seek their name to be lifted high, where the prayer, the Christian prayer, seeks the Lord's kingdom to expand through evangelistic prayer and ministry. So these four things should be built into our prayer life, not for selfish desires, so that we can actually see the kingdom of God expand as we pray evangelistically for salvations in our world. Let's head into verse 2. For kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. Yes, we're to pray for all people, yet we're also specifically to pray for kings and those in high positions, essentially for those who run our country and make decisions that impact our nation. Again, the prayer focus is to be evangelistic. We're to pray for their salvation, that they would be loyal to the Lord Jesus in their lives. We're to pray that they repent from their sins, and in doing so, they would make wise and just decisions. And when we pray in this way, it removes the thought of rebellion in our hearts and we become peacemakers. Now, during the season of COVID, I've watched many Christians hammer our government, mock leaders and even slander against them, usually on social media. Yet our deepest desire should be to evangelistically pray for them, for their salvation, for them to be wise in Christ. How can you genuinely seek the salvation of another when you are busy mocking them? Whether Labour, Lib Dem, Conservative or any other party, the church is to be earnest in its prayers for the leaders of our nation. Yes, this evangelistic prayer has great benefit to the leader. Ultimately, we're seeking for their salvation in Christ, but also has benefits to the church. For if our leaders do indeed repent and they do indeed seek Jesus, there'll then be no external disturbances to the church's ministry. Because it's usually the leaders of our nation that cause us not to be able to go out and do the ministry that we seek to do. Even if they don't seek Jesus, even if they don't repent and seek salvation in his name, the internal disturbance of our want to rebel against the law of the land is dealt with as we evangelistically pray for them. So whether rebellion stops from leader down or whether it stops from ourselves up, it is all reliant on the evangelistic prayer of our leaders for the nation for we believe in the one we pray to the one who's in control of all things and the one who ultimately even those in high positions will have to answer to as 1 Thessalonians 4:11 says and to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs we seek not rebellion against government but the pursuit of peace and how will this be achieved verse 2 says through godly and dignified conduct starting with evangelistic prayer, but having a reverence for God that outworks in a reverence to sound moral behaviour. There should be not one person that you cannot pray for. And that's one of the greatest antidotes to division, to disunity and to despair, to pray for the individual for prayer unites around Jesus, the greatest peacemaker of all. In praying evangelistically, we seek the power of Jesus to be at the core of not just our own lives, but all lives. So we are to pray for the leaders of our nation. However, this is not the only reason to do so, to simply have peace. Let's find out more in verse 3. This is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God, our Saviour, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Our evangelistic prayers for all and especially for leaders of our nation is not only good, meaning morally right, but it pleases God to hear our prayers. We please God when we pray beyond our self-interest, beyond our friendship groups. We please God when we have a heart for the lost and when we recognize that salvation belongs to the Lord himself and therefore we pray for that salvation on the leaders of our nation. This pleasure in the prayers for the lost speaks of God's desire to see all people saved. 2 Peter 3, 9, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but all should reach repentance. More than being saved, great as that is, the Lord seeks all to have a developed faith, to come to the full knowledge of the truth. And this is what Peter describes in his letters as epinosis, the complete knowledge or the full understanding of the truth in Christ. It is full and complete in maturing faith in the cross of Christ. It is one that daily grows and sees daily sanctification that becomes more like Christ each step that is taken. This is the prayer of evangelism. This is the prayer for the leaders and for all people that they seek Jesus and they would come to full knowledge in him and we pray that for their salvation but also to please our heavenly father. Verse five, for there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. We are to pray evangelistically, because there is one God. Deuteronomy 4.35, to you it was shown that you might know that the Lord is God, there is no other besides him. Many have tried, but nothing has ever matched up to the only God. One corinthians eight six yet for us there is one God, the Father from whom all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom all things and through him we exist. God has always been and will always be the only God. He is the only one that we can find salvation in acts four twelve and there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. That is why we pray, for it is only the salvation that God provides that can save all mankind, even kings and rulers of our land. The salvation provided through Jesus Christ, the one mediator, A mediator simply means someone who intervenes to restore peace. And who better to restore peace between God and man than Jesus, who is both God and man. Jesus mediates or intervenes to restore peace by giving himself as a ransom. He takes our place as the prisoner of sin and uses himself as the ransom to be paid. And he does so in accordance to the will of the Father. Therefore, bringing peace by satisfying the wrath of God and giving away for the people to draw close to the Father. Jesus is the eternal atoning sacrifice that provides salvation that we are to pray for all people to come to know. And it's this that we pray for, that Jesus would intervene in the lives of others, especially the rulers of our land, to save their souls and bring peace to their eternal lives. Verse seven, for this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I am telling you the truth, I am not lying a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. The for this at the beginning of the verse is referring to the truths in verse three to six. Paul's commission by Christ was to preach and to herald the truth of the mediator, of the one who would intervene to provide salvation from our sin and the guilt for salvation for the guilt of our evil. Paul was the messenger of the king and his message was clear, salvation through Jesus Christ. And notice how boldly and very clearly he states, it's truth, it is not a lie. It should be believed and it should be accepted as coming from God. So you can clearly see that the first thing the church should do, having now dealt with the false teachers, having now silenced them, having now removed them from the church is to pray evangelistically. Walter Locke, a theologian in the 1800s said, God's will to save is as wide as his will to create. Don't minimise the will of God by only praying for those in your close circle of friends. Pray for all, especially world leaders. So that's the first thing that the church should do. Paul moves from addressing the whole church Looking at the conduct of prayer and he now looks at separating men and women and their individual conducts in church and the public worship service. And he first goes to men in verse 8. I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarrelling. I desire in some translations is noted as I command or I urge and we've seen I urge already in the passage. It comes with the full weight of being an apostle appointed by Jesus. In other words, it's coming with the full weight of God himself. And notice the next wording here, then, I desire then. It carries on from the previous section. Because Jesus is the mediator, because it pleases God, because we are commanded, Paul urges men to pray. And from the phrasing of every place, we can take this as in each and every church, men are to pray. However, remember, Paul is concentrating on the conduct of the church. Therefore, it's not simply a command to pray, but a command in how to pray. In the Old Testament, it was common for those who were praying to lift their hands toward heaven. Psalm 63 verse 4. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name, I will lift up my hands. There was a specific posture in prayer, yet Paul is not even talking about the posture. The emphasis is not on the lifting, but on the type of hands. Specifically, they are to be holy hands. Paul commands the men of the church to lead the church into a life of prayer, and that prayer comes from a holy life. The conduct of those who pray evangelistically is to be holy, to be set apart. In other words, in both heart and deed, they are to be godly men that pray evangelistically. I find it particularly interesting that the two examples of elements of living that do not reflect holiness is that of anger and quarrelling. It is as if God already knows that men have a bit of an issue with anger and disagreements. Now I've been in churches for over 20 years as a Christian, 14 years in service and ministry, and just over eight years as a pastor. And what is consistent in every one of those years and in every church is that the men of the church are often found having anger problems and ending up in deep quarrels and arguments. Yet men, let me be very clear. Let me talk directly to you now. This is the command of God that not only are you to pray, but you are to do so without anger or quarrelling as an aspect of your life. Whether you are older or you are younger, the command for the conduct of the men in the church is clear. Men have to repent from their anger, must repent from the bickering and quarrelling, for the Lord commands the men of the church to be holy. Remember the statement at the beginning of this message? Sound doctrine leads to sound conduct, where conduct slips, is likely due to a diminished doctrine. To be a man known for your anger, for your outburst, for quarrelling, means you are slipping in godly conduct, meaning you are likely having a diminished view of sound doctrine in your life. Now, the havoc that is caused in a church when men begin to have a diminished view of sound doctrine is monumental. So let's be very clear so that the command of God can be obeyed and so that Christ can be glorified. Men are to repent from unholy living, from anger and from quarreling, and then they are to live a life praying and reflecting Titus 2:2. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love and in steadfastness. Well, if that is the command for men. What is the command for the conduct of women in the church specifically in the public worship setting? Well, verse nine is where we head to. Likewise also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire. I want you to note the word likewise. The order here is important. As the men of the church are to live with sound doctrine and to live in sound conduct, likewise, the women are to follow the same approach to public worship and the church body in a holy manner. They are to be sound in doctrine and sound in conduct. And I'll come back to the order of this in a few moments. I think it would be quite important and we'll come back to it as we continue the text. But what we see here in the text now is that women should adorn. Now, this word in the Greek is kosmio. It's where we get the word cosmetic from. They are to adorn, speaking of getting ready or arranging themselves. In the conducts of this verse, the women of the church are to adorn with respectable apparel. Remember, Paul is specifically talking about the conduct of the church. We've done men in the church, but now the women in the public worship service. And when coming to church, women are to neither be showy and flash or indifferent without care to what they wear. Their clothing is to be respectable. In terms of other items, Paul states the use of braided hair, gold and pearls should not be adorned, should not be on oneself. The intent here is not to ban certain styles, but to set forth the principle of what would distract both the individual and those around them. In the time of Paul, pearls and gold would be interwoven into elaborate hairstyles. The more elaborate, the more jewellery, the more attention would be drawn. There's also mention to costly attire, which induces envy from those who cannot afford, but desperately want what you're wearing. The issue is not in the specific style, but in both the motivation and the outcome of that style. Why are you dressed in this way? To gain attention from others, meaning you remove their attention from Christ. To look good and therefore to feel good about yourself, therefore placing your worth in your looks rather than being a child of God. Some may even say that they do it for themselves, they feel more confident. Yet where does the confidence come from? The fact that others might judge you less harshly and maybe look upon you nicely because you've adorned something that draws the attention. Yet our confidence doesn't come into what people think, but our confidence is drawn from the only God, the mediator, Jesus Christ. Remember, the letter of Timothy was written to the church in Ephesus, but for the church today. That is why the principle that comes out from this command is modesty and discretion. The principle set here is to reject ungodly behaviour of distraction or confidence in worldly things. Instead, it's to take up the mantra to honour Christ both in heart and outward appearance. The principle is self-control. The focus is on Christ, not on looks, not on dress, not on external appearance, but on the salvation found in the Lord Jesus Christ anything that distracts or tempts yourself or anyone else from this should not be adorned in the public worship setting. In fact, Paul goes further to show how a godly woman should show her holiness. Just as men to show their holiness through lifting holy hands. Women are to be holy and in verse 10 we get how they're to show that. Verse 10, what what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Women that, compla- com- sorry, women that claim and profess godliness are to support such a claim not by adorning certain worldly appearances, but by adorning good works. To affirm the pursuit of godliness, women are to adorn themselves with the good works towards others that have been set before them by King Jesus. The emphasis here is spiritual, not physical. The appearance and action of a woman will flow from their heart in a spiritual way. Just as men are to repent from the unholiness of anger and quarrelling, women are to not show their unholiness by focusing on physical appearance and drawing attention in public worship. Instead they are to focus on the spiritual life, on the good works that they do for Christ. That is what they adorn. That is what they come to the public worship service with, not how they look but how their heart reflects the spiritual nature of a gospel transformed life, one that is focused on Christ Christ Jesus, one that is committed to the word of God and one that is committed to the eternal life that is promised by the mediator who intervenes to provide salvation. So what you see here is, it is both the outward appearances. As men lift their holy hands, their hands are to be, quote, holy. As women enter the public worship service, they're not to be looking on their outward appearance holy, rather their heart is to outflow their holiness. Let's continue in verse 11. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. Now, during the time of Paul, it was very common, specifically in Jewish circles, to not permit women to learn in any form of way. In fact, the phrasing was often given that they were to hear, but they were never to learn. That was the culture of the time that women could simply just hear words, but they were not allowed to learn. Paul commands that culture to be reversed. Women are to learn. And I want us to pause there for a moment. Paul not only affirms, but commands that women are to learn the word of God. The whole congregation, whether man or women are to be taught and are to grow toward that epinosis spoken about earlier, that complete full knowledge of Jesus Christ. What we have here is a spiritual equality in the church. Men and women are to know the word of God. Women are not inferior, men are not superior. Instead, they are all humbly students of the word. And who is the word? Jesus. Therefore, we are all humbly students of Christ, each one of us. Not so long ago, I was asked by a few ladies to help lead them in a study through a theological text. And with a hearty yes, I agreed, for there is nothing more precious than the people of God learning and studying the word of God. Whether a man or a woman, whether older or younger, we are commanded to learn and study the word of God. Yet having said this, Paul divines the conduct of public worship within the context of specific roles. With women spiritually equal and not inferior, they are to learn in quietness and submission. The connotation of submission is to be under. And what we are seeing here is that in the public worship service, women are to learn but not teach. The public worship setting is for men, and let me be very clear, repentant, holy and godly men to lead, and for a woman godly through works not appearance to follow. This does not remove spiritual equality, and it does not make anyone inferior or superior, but it is honoring to the order that God has set. Now I want to be very clear, this does not mean that women are not to teach. Titus 2 and verse 3 to 4. Older women likewise are to be reverent in behaviour, not slanderers or slaves to too much wine. They are to teach what is good and so train the young women to love their husbands and children. The older women of the church are specifically tasked to teach the younger women of the church to have sound conduct in life before Christ. But more than that, we also have Acts 18.26. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him they took him and explained to him the way of God more accurately Here we have a married couple teaching a man the ways of God yet not in the context of the public worship service but separately and privately what Paul is talking about is the public worship setting. The same setting that false teachers are being commanded to be silent. The same setting that men are to lift holy hands and the same setting that women are not to adorn appearance and look instead they're to come and adorn godly works. As I say this, I know there'll be some bristling, even angry that such things are being said. They will argue that throughout the Bible there are godly women, which there is no denying. And in fact, we celebrate that throughout the Bible we see godly women who serve, who love Christ, who love the Lord and who lead others to salvation but there's also some that will say and simply state that Paul is purely addressing a cultural matter and we should get with the times and see that culture has changed and therefore the church should change yet look at how Paul responds to these arguments in verse 13. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Paul does not go to culture to justify the command. He goes both to creation and the fall to show the justification. Paul uses scripture, the very words of God, the words that are complete truth that can be fully trusted to show the will of the Lord. We see two distinct genders in creation, man and woman. We see a specific order in creation with man first and woman second. We see the design of God with the covenant being placed upon Adam for Adam to lead his wife and for his wife Eve to follow his leading. 1 Corinthians 11 from verse 8 For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. I want to be abundantly clear. This does not mean patriarchy where men can behave however they choose. No, we have already seen that men are to lift holy hands. And now we see that women in the public worship context are to be holy learners and followers as God designed it in creation. To hit the point home further, Paul then looks to the fall. And notice how the roles were reversed. Eve became the lead in giving Adam the fruit and Adam becomes the follower or the learner by taking and eating off the fruit. God's holy standard is reversed by the sin of both Adam and Eve leading to the sin that we are now all tarnished with. This was not about culture in the church of Ephesus. This was about godly principles set into creation and then destroyed in the fall. Paul, through the words of God, is commanding a return to these holy principles in the public worship setting. And you can bristle and you can fight all you like, but this is the word of God. This is the truth that we are to follow. Yet Paul doesn't finish here. He brings one more thought. Verse 15. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. The she that Paul refers to is Eve, she will be saved or brought through or will endure or will come at the other end of childbearing and find salvation. This refers to the curse that was placed upon Eve and all women that they would face pain in childbearing. And yes, there'll be pain, but the Lord will bring Eve through it and mankind will be expanded because of it. And having been saved through it, all women or men are now saved through faith in the love of Christ Jesus, through His righteousness imputed onto us that brings self-control in our lives to live in such a way to honour a holy God. And all this ultimately refers to the desire of God to see all saved, to come to that full knowledge of Christ. He will save us through the trials so that we have opportunity to hear his word and respond to the call of salvation in his name. Now we've packed a lot into the sermon today and there's probably a lot there for you to think about in terms of the conduct of the church, the conduct of men and the conduct of women. So let me just close out by giving some simple, clear and straight to the point application and I remind you first of the statement, sound doctrine leads to sound conduct. Where conduct slips, it is likely due to diminished doctrine. So we take that statement and we have our first application. Does the prayer life of the church reflect sound doctrine and therefore sound conduct? Do we pray only for ourselves and the needs of our own tight group? Are we passionate about evangelistic prayer? I encourage each and every one of you, get beyond your little life and see the need for the gospel around the world. Be on your knees in prayer, praying for all but specifically for our leaders. Pray for Boris Johnson, pray for the EU leaders, pray for Joe Biden, pray for the UN, pray for all our nations, that they would repent and know Jesus as Lord, for that is both sound doctrine that pleases the Lord and sound conduct that brings about a church that doesn't seek rebellion, but seeks the unity of Christ. The second, do the men of the church reflect sound doctrine and therefore sound conduct in how they live? As I reflect on this question, I think sadly us men have much work to do on this. We need right now men of God to stand up and be counted. We need you right now to lead the church in prayer. We need you right now to quit the anger and the rage and the quarrelling and come with a gentle and lowly heart. We need the men of the church right now to be a holy example. We need the men of the church right now to get serious about what it means to be holy in conduct. We don't need macho, arrogant, condescending, irritable and grumpy men. We need the men of God right now to stand up and be counted for Christ. And that means we lift our holy hands, committed to Christ, having repented from anger and quarrelling. And finally, do the women of the church reflect sound doctrine and therefore sound conduct in their lives? Today, are you fueled by anger and frustration, possibly even disgust at what 1 Timothy 2 commands in certain things? Or are you humble, seeking Jesus through holy works, focusing on the kingdom rather than Luke's, and a willingness to learn with zeal and passion? We need women right now to be students of the word. We need older women to teach younger women that confidence in appearance is futile, but confidence in the Lord is phenomenal. We need women in the church right now to be serious about Bible reading, Bible study, sharing the gospel and discipleship with others. And I close with this, none of this has anything to do with culture. In fact, we are called to be counter-cultural. All of this is to do with the holy standards of God. It's all about obedience to the word of God so that the church of Christ will glorify the creator by men and women being sound in doctrine and sound in conduct. We know that John's gospel says, if you love me, keep my commands. So church, men, women, we love God so we keep his commands in sound doctrine and in sound conduct. Let's pray. Father, we know there's a lot in this passage, we know there's a lot there that we'll struggle with and we pray that you would give us a humble and gentle heart so that we approach the word of God in obedience, seeking to glorify Jesus Christ. Father, we pray that the church would pray evangelistically. Right now, Father, we pray for our leaders. We pray for Boris Johnson. We pray for the political parties. We pray that they would have salvation found in Jesus, that they would live a wise life before him. Father, we pray that the men of the church will quit being angry and quarrelsome, Father, we pray the men of the church will lift holy hands and pray fervently and passionately for Jesus to come and work in our communities. And Father, we pray for the women of the church, that they would be respected, that they would be encouraged to learn the word of God, that we would see great Bible scholars coming through and that they would be serious about discipleship. Father, we know that this passage is difficult. We know that it's hard, especially in this culture. But Father, we pray that not only would they know the love of Christ, but they would know the love of the church as we seek to honour the commands of God and so Father we pray this in your holy name, Amen.